Hi everyone, my name is Ger Hartnett and today we're talking about scaling your applications with MongoDB to make them more successful, cost less and run faster. Welcome, I'm Shane McAllister and this is the MongoDB Podcast. As ever, we're glad to have you join us. This episode focuses on performance and scalability. But before we get into this episode, let's also hear from Mike, Megan, and myself as we discuss what's new in the world of MongoDB developer relations. I'd like to welcome back Megan and Shane. How are you folks? Good. How are you? Doing great. Good, good. Good to be back. <laughs> great. Well, Megan, you've got another great publication of all of the things that are happening in the world. Why don't you tell us what's happening on the Dev2? All right. So um, if people want to head over to Developer Center, which is mongodb.com forward slash developer, we are always publishing new content every week. Some of the highlights from the last few weeks, we've got an article up on how you can prevent credit card fraud using MongoDB and Databricks. And I always love content like this because it takes highly technical subjects and applies them to very real world issues. I'm always worried about people stealing my stuff, <laughs> you know, my credit card information. <laughs> We've got a five minute guide to working with ESG data on MongoDB. And then from one of our guest authors, he wrote about how to add autocomplete to a Next.js application using Atlas Search. So lots of good stuff coming out of Developer Center. I'm hearing more and more about ESG, environmental social governance. Looking forward to uh, some some podcast content around that. Fantastic. So this is all available on the Developer Center. How do folks get there? MongoDB.com forward slash developer. And as always, you know, we write our content with code blocks and screenshots so that people can follow along and essentially try to mimic what we're doing and do it themselves. Hey, Shane, what's going on with you? It's event season. You know, it has kicked off. January is always a quiet month and then February and March and everything's kicking off. So I, I was looking back over where in the world are MongoDB advocates and engineers and, and people speaking. So I saw we did Data in Motion Boston. We've done Full Stack Seville. We've done a number of mugs as well, too, which are the MongoDB meetup groups. And we've done them in Delhi and Thailand and Lebanon. Paris, Singapore, and you did one in New York City recently as well, Mike. Yep. But yeah. what's upcoming, Megan? Where where can you find a, an engineer, a developer advocate, uh, an essay from MongoDB near you soon? We're going to be everywhere. So we've got trips <laughs> to, um, we'll be in San Francisco and Nairobi. We've had a few trips to Nairobi and also Sao Paulo. And those are all going to be mugs, which are uh, MongoDB user groups. We will be at Orlando Code Camp later this week. And as we speak, our team is getting set up at the Game Developers Conference, which I believe is in San Francisco. And mm -hmm. they've got some really cool stuff to share. So that's going to be very exciting. Yeah, I can't wait to see the output from that. I know they put in a lot of effort mm -hmm. to create some really cool games and some really interactive stuff for the Game Developer Conference. So we, we wish Chuck and Dominic and the others who are there the, the best of luck with that. On YouTube, Mike, what's been happening over there? Oh, we've got so much going on on YouTube. I just had a great session with Jay Runkle, our distinguished solutions architect. We were talking about application-driven analytics, and this is the first in a three-part series. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, watch for uh, March 15th, the 22nd, and the 29th for that live stream. It's going to be 10 a.m. Eastern. Check the show notes for details on that. 
but we've just had so much content. We had uh, Nick Raboy and Karen Walme do a session on Atlas Search, and that's available for replay on YouTube as well as LinkedIn. So if you want to build a Netflix clone, check that content out. I had another great session with a mobile developer, the person responsible for the Flutter SDK, part of the Realm Suite, Casper Nielsen, walked through developing a mobile app using Flutter, Realm, and Atlas. That was a great, uh, great session. And all of these are available on the MongoDB YouTube channel. You can check out the live channel within uh, youtube.com slash MongoDB. So uh, all of that stuff is available for, for replay. And I suppose it would be remiss of us not to plug the podcast on the podcast. So, Mike, you and I shared some interesting guests. I had uh, Ulian from Mr. Q, which was an online casino in the UK, which was our last episode, which was really interesting. They're taking a different view to the online casino space and trying to make it more fun and less about you know, there is gambling still involved, there is money at stake, but they've got safeguards and they've got a player charter that they try to adhere to. Prior to that, you had Jay, who you mentioned about the on YouTube there, also on the podcast, Mike. Yeah, yeah. We, it's kind of a multi-pronged approach, uh, again, talking about application-driven analytics, just a really powerful way to make use of data as a part of your application. So that was episode 154. That's available at mongodb.com slash podcast. Uh, prior to that, you were talking to uh, Owen Brazil. Yeah, it was all about the MongoDB University, and that's brand new. We relaunched it all back in November. It's open and free, non-gated, so you don't even need to register to jump on to MongoDB University and start learning. Obviously, if you do register, you can create learning paths and you, you get some more features there, but you can jump straight in and test out some of those courses. And the big thing that Owen was explaining on that episode was that we've created the university, as I would call it, for the TikTok generation, smaller mm. bite-sized pieces of learning. So if you've got eight, 10 minutes to spare, you can jump in and, and take a course and, and not have to devote a couple of hours or a morning or an afternoon, which is really good. And prior to that, you had another episode, Mike, on, on the online archive. Yeah, I was talking to Prem. Krishna, he is a product manager in the uh, in the online archive space. So talking about how you can not only reduce costs, but improve the performance of your MongoDB deployment using online archive. And that gives you the ability to offload either older documents in your, in your database or documents that meet a certain rule set. So that's episode 152 called Data Tiering Using Online Archive. And that's with Prem Krishna. This has been a superb synopsis. There's a lot to take in, but Megan puts all of this together. Where, Megan, where can we go find these weekly updates? You can either sign up on the MongoDB forums or we post every week on Dev.2, especially if you want a recap of our calendar each month. It's kind of hard to keep up with all of the events. So I always <laughs> include all of those in the weekly updates. Or you could go to mongodb.com forward slash developer. And we also have an events page there as well. Great. Thanks for the update, Megan. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, Shane. Excellent. Always good to chat. And with that, on to the main content of our episode. Designing a high-performance and cost-efficient system requires deep knowledge of MongoDB technologies. As your business grows, so will the demands on your database. If you're wildly successful, you'll need to scale your minimal viable product into a humongous scalable product. This scaling journey can have profound impacts on the growth and costs of your business. 
In this episode, we meet two of my colleagues from MongoDB, Jer Hartnett, Lead Engineering, and Zhao Chen Wu, Staff Product Manager, who take us through an overview of the 12 patterns and best practices to help diagnose and scale software applications. So let's get started. Welcome to the podcast, Jer and Zhao Chen. It's great to have you here. Why don't you briefly introduce yourselves and what you do at MongoDB and your background? So maybe Zhao Chen, I'll start off with you. Oh yeah, of course. Hello everyone. My name is Zhao Chen. I'm a staff product manager at MongoDB, mainly working on query and the performance. And prior to joining MongoDB, I work at Microsoft for about 14 years, mainly SQL, Azure SQL, SQL, SQL Server. So basically, I've been working my whole career on databases. We're excited to be here today. So you went from SQL Server to a NoSQL, non-relational exactly. database company. <laughs> great to have you. And Jer? Thanks, Shane. Yes, great to be here. My name is Jer Hartnett. I'm the lead engineer for the product performance team at MongoDB. So it's a small team that looks at the, yeah, the kind of end-to-end full system performance of the product. I've been with the company nine years and worked in other mm-hmm. roles previously. Before MongoDB, I worked for a small startup that unfortunately didn't, didn't make it. And before that, I worked for Intel, working on tuning software and offloading into to hardware. So yeah, I've had a performance background from there for quite a while. It's an interesting background for both of you. So today we're talking about performance and scalability. I first came across this in a presentation that you gave Jer at our dot local London. I know Jai Chen, you had some travel issues and couldn't make it because you usually do this together. In that presentation, you have 12 patterns, but you do this as a workshop also where it's three and a half to four hours maybe. But in the presentation, you do only 30 minutes. So you ask the audience to vote, which I thought was super interactive to see which patterns they'd like to hear about. We did talk, Jer. Briefly, yeah. at .local London Live, we were recording a lot of podcasts there at the show. And even in our conversation there, which might have been 12, 15 minutes, we only got to talk about two of these patterns. Hence, I really wanted to get both of you back on the podcast to go into this area a lot more. Because I think it's one of the things that people, once you're familiar with MongoDB and once you're using MongoDB for your workloads, and etc., is that it's never done. The job is never done. There's a lot you can do to improve the performance and scalability. And when I heard your presentation, there's areas that I did not know about or wasn't aware of. And so I know we've got 12. We have a lot to get through, and we've probably only really touched the surface on a few of them. But I think they're really interesting. And I know that we also, and we'll put this in our show notes, have links to your world presentation and links to the dot local presentation and also docs and, and then a blog post series as well. So for our audience and our listeners, while we are not going to go into too much detail, there is plenty of other material you can dive into if the conversation with Zhao Chen and Jer has piqued your interest. But let's start off with the first set of patterns. I know you broke them down into three sections in your presentation. So the first one was all about the big picture and understanding the requirements. Do you want to jump in there, Jer, perhaps? So I guess the first three patterns are really around the big picture. And a quick segue just onto what patterns are. It comes from an architect, originally a guy called Christopher Alexander, and he put together this way of 
documenting best practices, really, called pattern languages. So Mm -hmm. each pattern is a problem statement Mm -hmm. and then a solution to that problem with a few more details as well along the way. So each of these patterns really is like a classic problem and then the solution to it. So they're not unique to MongoDB necessarily. Yeah, no, they're not. I used the idea in the past writing a blog post back in the Intel days, actually. And we used it in a book there as well to document some of the best practices around performance. And at Dot Local London, I remember the introduction to your presentation. You used a really good example, essentially going back to the early COVID years, as we refer yes. to them, about a company in the education space that was about to go on public media. And they were super concerned about yeah. their ability once COVID kicked in, everybody went online for their learning and this media exposure. Tell me a little bit about that example. Yeah, it was interesting. I think everyone remembers where they were in March 2020. And in this particular case, it was a startup company in a European country, really small company. They were running an application on MongoDB Atlas. It was just a replica set. It was pretty small. They were still in development mode. And they were about to be featured on national television and all of the children in that country were going to be logging into their system on one day. So they were (laughs) going to get a lot of sign-ups over the weekend. So they were really nervous. They were about to get a deluge of sign-ups and they needed to take their essentially minimal viable product and make it humongous and scalable as quickly as possible. So it presented itself as a a huge opportunity, but they were concerned that they might have a problem on their hands. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So they needed to know it would scale up. And in in a way, they were lucky. They got a little bit of advance notice. They were already running an Atlas, so we could Mm -hmm. help them scale very quickly. And they didn't have a huge data set, right, that needed to move around and get distributed Mm -hmm. to multiple different machines. So... It was a real classic case of it was like the scariest moment for them, but also a really exhilarating moment as well. And the key was that they didn't want the technology to be the limiting factor for their business, essentially. That's that's what can happen. I've often seen it where scalability issues really hold a business back in terms of its growth. And then companies have to throw money at the problem. And that can get expensive. They mm-hmm. end up nonlinear scaling of costs versus users. Understood. So these 12 patterns, take a dive into the first one that you'd like to discuss with the audience. Yeah, well, the very first one is understanding the requirements. Performance tuning can become a never-ending task, really. Mm-hmm. So at the very early stages of the project, if possible, write down what the performance requirements should be, get those agreed. And I guess the solution to this is to, to really try to make those requirements smart. You mm-hmm. often hear this phrase, smart requirements. It's used in a lot of different contexts, but it really means that The requirements should be specific about what the targets are. They should be measurable in some way. It should be achievable. That is, it should be realistic for the hardware you want to run Mm -hmm. the application on. It should be relevant to the end users themselves. Often I've seen requirements written that really don't matter to to end users. And the T then stands for time bound. It must be achievable in the time that, that you have. So I often... I've seen requirements where it's either make it as fast as possible. You could be doing that forever. Or the requirement might be unrealistic. You might have a budget for a certain size of machine, 
and you want to run a million queries per second on that machine and that's just not practical. Mm. So that that's the key first is to get everyone on the same page to understand what the performance requirements are. Otherwise, the project could go on forever. Sure. And I suppose in that case of the company that was almost overnight going to inherit tons of new accounts and users, how would they have even considered a world-changing event such as COVID, for example? It probably wasn't anywhere in their requirements. They were MVPing it for another while, I suppose, before this happened. Yes. Yeah. No, in that case, it wasn't possible. And that's the thing about these patterns. All of them may not be applicable to everyone at the same time. I think it's a case of applying the ones that apply to you. Well, I suppose the analogy might be that the fact that there is a cost. If you can throw money at the problem, a lot of these issues might disappear. But it's the same or akin to having a really fast, expensive car, but all you're doing is going down to the shops and back. You're not racing it and you're not traveling across continents. So I I would imagine that an awful lot of this is expectation driven. uh, Yeah, that's absolutely true. The opposite I've seen happen as well, Shane, where you know, a company might over-engineer something and build it for scalability that might never happen. And then that slows their time to market. There's a real balancing act here. Totally. And so understanding the requirements, I get that. I understand how that would be key to getting things right from the offset. The next one on your list was thinking systems. Yes. So I guess systems are complex systems, much like we see in nature. And a system essentially is an interconnected set of elements that are somehow organized, hopefully in a coherent fashion for kind of to work together to a purpose. We see systems in nature. The solar system has interacting elements, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a star and all of the planets. Now we're going very big, Ger. Now we're going, that's a big system. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, um, And then you've got climate is a system on our planet. You've got Mm -hmm. a forest is a system. Each individual tree in the forest is a system. The animals are a system. Mm -hmm. They're made up of cells, which are a system as well. So it's systems all the way down, really. The thing is that systems are hard to understand. There's communicating elements. They're all working independently. And what can happen sometimes is they can act in surprising ways. Right. So if you make a change to one part of the system, you might think that it's going to improve the performance, Mm, but it can mm. have the opposite effect somewhere else. So it's really a way of thinking about these problems. Okay. So I get that in so far as if you're discreetly thinking about the components of your tech stack, whatever the case that might be, improvements in one area lead to bottlenecks in another area or degradations in service in another area. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And human beings are not good at understanding nonlinear changes Mm -hmm. and things like that. Often seen it where somebody thinks they're making an improvement and that may not be the bottleneck in the system at all. And they spend an awful lot of effort looking in the wrong place. And that kind of leads into to pattern number three, mm-hmm. where you're, it really talks about the process of performance improvement. And really, any system can have many different limiting factors. Bottleneck hunting is the third pattern. And really, it's a case of understanding what the current bottleneck is and what's limiting the performance of the overall system. And then 
trying to solve that and then moving on to the next bottleneck if the requirements are not met from pattern one. Okay. Give us a typical example of a bottleneck that you might encounter in an overall system. I would imagine they're, they're many and varied. The, typically, the top two are either your CPU bound or your IO bound in some way. So okay. either the speed of the underlying storage behind the database is the limiting factor or the, the performance of the CPUs and the subsystems around the CPUs, that could be the limiting factor as well. At a very high level, if you were running a database yourself on-prem in, in your own servers, there's probably about 20 main bottlenecks that you'd need to be considering and worrying about. And then if you're using Atlas, the MongoDB's hosted cloud database that we manage for you, you have a lot less things to worry about. It probably halves the number of bottlenecks that you need to think about. There can be many and varied. <laughs> I remember, and this is, goes back a long time, in college, we had PCs with a switch for 2 megahertz or 8 megahertz on the back of the box. And yeah. some programs just would not run at the higher speed. You actually had to throttle it back in order yeah. to get the program to, so that you would avoid a, potentially a race condition or things being executed at the same time. Bottlenecks can occur in the opposite way as well, too, I would imagine. But interesting there that you say on-prem is going to give you potentially 20 or so and Atlas is going to give you half. I think that's a good plug for Atlas, <laughs> perhaps, yeah. most definitely. I think as a developer data platform, we're trying to take care of a lot of the things that developers would in the past certainly have been concerned about so they can get on and create their best applications yes. going forward. So the bottlenecks can be many and varied. Other areas of patterns and improvements are to do with queries and indexes. Yeah, that's correct. I guess the next one that we cover, one thing I'd just like to mention as well, just on the bottlenecks, there's a, there's a lot of good tools for figuring out where the bottleneck is, either mm -hmm. command line tools in Linux for looking at IO and uh, IO utilization. Atlas provides tools which helps you see which collections in your MongoDB database are the hot collections, the ones mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that are running a lot of the operations. And you can also see things like network traffic as well. But yeah, the queries are, are obviously important and designing the schema is a key consideration as well. There's been whole talks on that at mm -hmm. MongoDB mm -hmm. World. We have whole courses on it in the MongoDB University. It's a pretty big area, but important to, while MongoDB is very flexible in terms of the schemas, there's still a schema and there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. So that, that needs to be considered as well. So that will be pattern number four, designing the schema. Mm, I see a lot of the time schemaless bandied about uh, as well yeah. too. As you said, that doesn't mean uh, we're quite flexible with regard to schema, but it's always important to have a schema designed from an outset. Yeah, the great flexibility of MongoDB, what I really, and what drew me to the company really in the first place was the way it models data is very natural. So it, it, there's a clear correspondence between an, an object in a modern programming language and a document that's stored in the database. And then that kind of brings in one of the key decisions, which is documents or objects in the database can have arrays within them. They can have sub-objects. They, in turn, can have arrays and sub-objects as well. One of the key questions becomes whether to model things as embedded arrays 
or, or to, to store references to, to documents in other collections. Interesting. And as you say, there's plenty of documentation and presentations. And I know we have a couple of webinars and live streams. So I will add any of those links with regard to schema design also into the show notes of the podcast. Moving on from schemas then, Jer, indexing is also really important. Obviously, indexes are important for when you're running queries. So let's say you're at the start of the project, you understand the requirements. Certain queries are important. You need to add indexes to support those queries. But I think what a lot of people forget is that each additional index consumes resources and ultimately it impacts the right performance. So if you know your requirements, there are a certain number of writes per second or updates per second or inserts per second and a certain number of queries. You know, if you have too many indexes, it's really going to impact the right performance. And this affects all databases. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a MongoDB issue. And the nature of the index matters as well. This is something when we spoke in MongoDB world in 2022, when we had the workshop that really animated a lot of people, they were really Mm -hmm. interested in this. Every additional index could have an impact of potentially 70% on the Mm, right performance. mm. We've seen other database systems which actually have an even bigger impact than that. But each index you add slows down the writes. So index sparingly, that's the key, I guess. People think indexes are free and they just add more. So it's key to keep the number of indexes as low as possible. And speaking of tools earlier when we were looking at bottlenecks, do we have suggestions within Atlas about potentially what your indexes should be and could be as well too. We will enable you to do it in a correct fashion, perhaps. Exactly. There's a performance advisor tool Mm -hmm. built into Atlas, and that will suggest extra indexes you should add and maybe indexes that you you could or should as well. If you're not using Atlas, you can still do a lot of analysis by looking at the logs, looking Mm -hmm. at the slow queries in the logs. You can run explains on the queries to understand which indexes are being used and how efficient they are. And you can also run experiments. Ideally, Mm -hmm. you would have a test system with a, a large amount of data in it. You could try dropping an index and then checking the log to see if you're getting a lot more slow queries. Mm -hmm, Often mm -hmm. we see customers will create an index for a query that runs six times an hour, but it's slowing down each of the thousand writes per second that are happening. So Mm -hmm. it can be a false economy. And I can imagine, I know we have time series data that we handle very well now, and we did a lot of special changes to how that is handled because IoT devices generate that thousand, thousand pieces of data every second or minute or whatever the case might be, depending. So that that helps as well too, correct? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Those mm-hmm. are special purpose indexes. Mm. Moving on then, what's the next thing to be concerned about? The next thing is, I guess there's a special kind of index called a compound index, which means mm-hmm. that you can create an index on multiple fields at the same time. And the great thing about compound indexes is that they can be used for multiple queries. So it's really a heuristic or a rule of thumb for the way to organize a compound index. So we recommend keeping in mind the letters ESR. So it stands like, let's say you're, you've got three fields in a document 
and you're trying to decide the order of fields to put in the index, we recommend mm -hmm. the ESR rule. So E stands for equality. So the example we use in the workshop is, let's say we were building a book review system and we want to add comments or ratings for the book reviews. The ISBN number would be the equality field. The dates of the reviews might be the S, the sort field. And then the range might be the rating, the number of stars each review would get. So I understand those ESR rules now. I didn't know what they were beforehand. It's good to know. Tell me a little bit about bulk rights as well. That was in this section on your talk. Yeah, I guess the context for this one is maybe you've got an application where you're writing a lot of documents or inserting a lot of documents at the same time. And the problem here is that you know, each individual operation is a network round trip and you need to wait for the result. Often what we see sometimes is customer will write an application and it's running very serially. It's waiting for the previous writes to finish before starting the next one. And maybe mm -hmm. there's a small number of write operations per network round trip, essentially. So that's what bulk writes can do. You can either insert many documents, you can send an array of documents, or you can send many operations encapsulated in one operation. So it, it saves all the network traffic going over and back and the serialization, essentially. I'm watching a series, which is old now, 2011, I think it was, called Halt and Catch Fire. Have you oh, seen yeah. that one? Yeah. I hadn't seen it. I'm watching it again. And they have these issues. They're building very early stage PCs, laptops. And it's amazing to see these, you know, in their infancy <laughs> as yeah. well, too. It's really good. So that's if anybody hasn't seen that, go find it wherever you can stream a series and definitely watch that. It's really good for the history of computing, as it were. I know it's fictitious. Loosely based on a particular company, as far mm. as I know, Shane, mm. but we won't speculate as to <laughs> what that company might be here Definitely not. I digress. So that was the bulk rights, and they were the kind of four main items within the queries and indexing section of your presentation. We're moving on to sharding and scaling. Now, anybody familiar with MongoDB knows that the Mongo in MongoDB is a shortened for humongous. So the scaling comes from our inception, essentially. So this is an interesting space, the sharding and scaling. So Talk to us about that. Jia Chen, is this your time to shine on the stage for these sections? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely talk about the sections about sharding and scaling. Actually, Jer already covered some of them, like the education company story. It's all about scaling, like you have mm -hmm. to prepare mm -hmm. for scaling. So we can definitely start with the first topic here we covered in our session, which is to manage connections. So I would like to talk about it in a different way because I had the experience the past weekend and made me think about this in different ways. So okay. I went to a basketball game this weekend in Barclays Center. And so I was staying in the line to try to get some beer and like a hot dog. <laughs> so they have three counters, but they only have two of them open. And people, the line is very long. And mm -hmm. what I gather was like, why we don't have all three counters open? They were like, oh, we don't have enough food. We don't have like people in the kitchen. They're not making enough food to sell, to serve you. So that's actually the very similar situation on managing database connections. So let's assume those counters are like connections you can make. It's not that the more connection you make, the more work can be done. So it could be the case that your backend server has actually become the bottleneck. Like in this case, they're not producing enough food. Hmm. Then hmm. 
if you're making more connections, that means like you're putting more pressure on your server. You may even like bring down your whole server and you probably, in mo most of the cases, you won't get most of the work done. So it might be a little bit counterintuitive, but in those cases, you may want to reduce the connections your application is making to your server. Uh, on the other side, if your application is not making enough connections, let's say you're like just buying beers, like making beers mm -hmm. easy. Mm -hmm. So you may want to open more connections so people don't have to stay in line for 20, 30 minutes to be able to get the beer. And another point is that like when you go to the place to order food, you will be okay, let me like two burgers, three hot dogs and five beers. You do that, right? You never do, okay, I'm going to one burger, I'm going to pay for this burger. I'm going to another burger and pay the second burger. So it's also the same mm. thing for database connections. So you don't want to do one thing at a time using a connection and close it and establish another connection and do the second thing. You may want to reuse the same connection to do multiple things and to run more operations. And so in that way, you can use that connection more efficiently because like establishing a connection that requires like a multiple handshake between mm -hmm. your client and the server, which consumes resources and also adding extra execution time to your operations. Hmm. There's an overhead involved in that connection. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I love the analogy, the food analogy. I think that worked really well. So uh, scaling was part mm -hmm. of this. So. Is scaling in this food analogy more counters and more staff? Oh, yeah. It's the same thing. If you yeah. are starting like the bakery mm -hmm. by yourself, in the beginning, you probably have, let's say, 20 customers per day, right? And you open a small shop, you're baking a few cookies and serving 20 customers. Everyone's happy. And the same with the story Jared told in the beginning of this talk, like this education system. You won't know probably one day people really like your cookie or some like celebrities tried your cookie and they post on Instagram. <laughs> then your cookie shop, your bakery becomes super famous in one day. And mm. second day people line up to try to get cookie from your place. So it's not saying you have to be able to handle 5,000, 50,000 customers in day one, but you have to plan for that. You need to get ready for that probably from day one. I think that's also a part of understand the requirements. Like you want to plan ahead. You want to do forecasting to see, okay, when do I do scaling and when do I, and when that happens, how do I do scaling? So talking about scaling, like technically there are two major categories, like two ways you can do scaling. You can either do scale up, which basically in the database world, just adding more hardwares. You can add more CPU cores. You can add more memories. You can use faster disk to have your database run faster and be able to handle more requests. Another way is to scale out, which is we talk about sharding. That's like a scale mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. solution. Instead of adding hardware to a single node, which technically there's an up limit. You cannot mm -hmm. keep adding CPU cores to all memories to your machines. But scale out, technically, you can do it with it unlimitedly. So you can scale out to 100, 200, 300 shards. It will work. Mm -hmm. And so that's what sharding is in some cases, I would say, I won't say it's in, in all the cases, but in some cases, I say may, maybe most cases, shard scale out and do sharding. It's a better scaling solution and more sustainable also and compared to scale up. And in most cases, it's also cheaper, actually. 
And obviously, we've a wide and varied audience. Jump into sharding mm-hmm. there for a second about the yep. definition of sharding. So therefore, we'll be able to understand the conversation that's going to follow on the shard key. Definitely. Yeah. So I think this part is going to be, it's a little bit hard for a podcast because we don't, <laughs> yes. we really need a visual, like to visual this. So any more food or beer analogies? Okay. Yeah. Let's, yeah, let's, con- let's continue to use your uh, bakery. Sharding so is franchising your here. bakery. Yeah. yeah. So let's say we're designing a app for the big, for the bakery store, and then you can order bread and you can order cookie from it. So in the app, you'll be defining different kinds of cookies you have, uh, croissants and the cupcakes. And you will define your customers, like a user can register and they get their addressing and they put their ordering and you will have your suppliers. So mm-hmm. whoever you buy like flour, you buy sugar from. And so when you try to scale out this system, there are two ways to do it. So you can have one database or one collection to store all your users, another collection to store all your suppliers and the third collection to handle all your orders. So that's one way to do it. The downside of this way to do it is that it's pretty unbalanced. So let's say the supplier basis might be stable. You'll probably get getting flowers and sugar from the same store, same person every single day, mm-hmm. but the user base can be, can grow really fast. So you will have to add more hardware and more capacity to handle that database where you store the user and also the other ones. So the second way to do this is to, for example, you can put all the users whose last name starting from A to G to the first database, from H to, let's say, S to the second database and the rest users, the third database. In this case, actually your user, the workload will be distributed more evenly into three databases. So basically, you are better leveraged resources on those three databases compared to the first way because mm-hmm. you are under leveraged in the database where you're storing your suppliers. So sharding is it's more like the concept of the second way. So basically, mm-hmm. you choose a shard key and the MongoDB will write the data according to the shard key. MongoDB will decide, okay, where are we going to put this document to? Which shard are we going to put it to? And we'll query it, we can also target the shard. Like for example, uh, my last name is Wu, which is start with a W. Mm-hmm. So it's very likely my information will be put in the last shard. And then we query it, the query will be redirect last shard. So the first two shards will doesn't need to do anything to handle this request. That makes a ton of sense. And I, I suppose much like indexing too, that we were chatting about earlier, Sharding was something that you really had to try and pay attention to back in the day. But I know more recently, we are allowing you to change your shard key, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I think recently starting 5.0, we allow mm-hmm. you to do a reshard, change your shard key as an online operation. So you don't have to bring your database down and like shuffle your data and reload to a different database. You can do it online, basically live in a in database and without interruption of your business or without interruption of your applications. Which is superb because I suppose going back to the very first item that we talked about at the patterns of understanding the requirements, they change over time. And so therefore, obviously yep. your shard key, how you're sharding would change. And therefore you need to update that shard key to make it more performant. Is that the same as rebalancing then? It's a little bit different. So I would say they're very, they're very related to each other. Like every time we'll change the shard key, 
we have to rebalance your sharks. And at the same time, like changing sharky is one of, one way to rebalance your sharks. Let's say for let's say for example, there's suddenly more people has the last name Wu. Then <laughs> you'll probably get like more customers get into the last shard compared to you have the customers you have in the first two shards. And you don't want to overload the third database. So you mm-hmm. probably want to rebalance the shards and put more users, shuffle some of the users into the first and second shard. So you can do it by changing the range of the shard key. You can say, okay, instead of have the first database to handle user with last name starting with A to G, I will have it handle the first name from A all the way to M or N. So they will get a little bit more data and you can have the rebalanced shards. And the other way to do it, I can reshuffle the data and change the shard key. So let's say instead of using the last name, the first letter of the last name of the shard key, now I can use the zip code as the shard. Sure. So okay, I'm going to put people from Manhattan to the first shard. I'm, I'm going to put people from New Jersey to the second shard and people from Queens and Brooklyn to the third shard. That's another way to use the shard. One thing I want to mention here, like even though we allow you to change shard key life, like in the online operation, you still need to be very careful when you're designing it, we'll choose your shard key at the, at the beginning because mm. reshuffling, rebalancing, and changing shard key are very expensive operations. You don't want to perform those operations very frequently on your database. That's really clear. And I love the analogies and the examples that you use. There's one last thing on my list anyway that I took down from reviewing your presentations, which was review production checklist. Tell me a little bit more about that. This is more like a summary of the mm-hmm. whole 12 patterns. Before you bring your database into production, you want to have the things you want to take care of and build a checklist. Like mm-hmm. you want to say, okay, do I design my schema properly? Did I think in system? Did I understand other requirements? Like how many capacity I have to handle right now? How many capacity do I need to handle in six months, 12 months? how the indexes looks like, how many application instances I'm going to be running and how many connections is going to be built on my database. So you want to put everything down on a, in a checklist. Mm-hmm. So make sure that you don't forget anything before you bring your database online to production. And another way we, rec- we would rec- recommend you to do is to have a test of staging environment where mm-hmm. you can test your application, test your database, even with heavier load. And so make sure like everything runs smoothly before you deploy out of change, everything to product. I'm sure, Shane, the listeners to this podcast, you know, that they're all very sensible people, right? And they do read the documentation, but they might have friends in other companies that don't do that. And maybe they can advise them to read the release notes. I'll give a good example. In 5.0, the default write concern changed in MongoDB to make writes more durable by default. And that kind of caught out some people when they upgraded to 5.0 because if they didn't specify the right concern, it was now using right majority, which is more durable, but is slower. It's important to go through these kinds of checklists before going into production. It's been fascinating to go through all of these that you've discussed in terms of enhancing performance and scalability. Are there some that are better at enhancing performance and scalability than others, or are they all of equal importance? I think it depends on the situation. I think some of them will be applicable to to some 
customers in some situations and some will be applicable to others. I guess design patterns were used in software development from the mid-90s. I remember using them myself to develop software systems. And you don't have to use all of them. I think that those were the mistakes that were made in the early days, right? Right. People used every design pattern in a piece of software. And I think three or four of them will be relevant and they're situationally relevant to different different users at different times. I, I agree with you that it totally depends on the situation and also what stage are you in your development deployment cycle. But as a person coming from the relational world, I have to say they're probably equally important, but they're something very unique. Some of them are very unique, I say more important for MongoDB users. I can vote for two things here personally. Mm -hmm. One is the design schema. So designing schema is more important and more like an art for MongoDB comparing to relational database because in relational world, there's, there are rules. So there are rules like to teach you how to design schema. And MongoDB give you more flexibility, but at the same time, also make it easier for you to make mistakes. If you don't design a schema properly, you probably won't get the best performance out of MongoDB. Mm -hmm. And the second thing I would say is the scaling part. It's the sharding part because that's like a unique value you can get out of MongoDB compared to other databases. And so, I, yeah, so I think those two things, if you are very familiar with relational database, and just recently pick up MongoDB, I think those two things you might want to think more when you are designing a database. That makes a ton of sense to me as well, too. In doing this, obviously, with a brand new customer or a new client or a new app or product that somebody's building, and you have all of this information at your fingertips, you've given yourself the best foot forward to set out and do this correctly. For an existing database on MongoDB, and like that example that you gave us at the start, Jur, of the educational company about to get a huge amount of new users and huge amount of more traffic, in doing these sort of performance and scalability improvements, is it an iterative process? Are you changing one thing at a time to see the improvement and effect that that has? Can you, should you, or would you pay, change more than one thing at a time? On, and how would you go about this ideally? I know it's going uh, to be yeah. very different in different circumstances. Do you fix one thing, see is that better, and then continue to do so or move to the next thing? Or can you do a few together? Yeah, ideally you change one thing at a time <laughs> to know if that's the really the bottleneck. It's a very iterative process, Shane. But I okay. think the key is to have a hypothesis about where the current bottleneck is and then devise an experiment to validate that or to make a change that should improve it. And then measure and see if it did improve it. And then let's say the bandwidth, the IOPS capability of the underlying storage was too low. Mm -hmm. You increase that. Now the bottleneck moves somewhere else. So you've got to go back and do the analysis again and figure out where the bottleneck to if you have a requirement. So it is an iterative process. Ideally, change one thing at a time, measure the effects of that, and then move on. But sometimes necessity means you need to try multiple things at the same time. Maybe you've had a lot of extra traffic and your application is at its limits in some way. I've seen it happen. And then you're not really sure what, what improved things, if indeed things. We talked about scaling up or out and vertically or horizontally as well, too. And that certainly increases performance. 
Is it always the case that increased performance leads to potentially increased costs as well? Or is there a balance between them? It can. I think the key is to be able to scale in a way that's, I guess, sustainable, right? If you add twice as many users or twice as much traffic to the system, you don't want to be trebling or quadrupling your costs. So that's what this is really all about, is trying to scale your costs lower than the, I guess, the traffic that's coming Mm -hmm. in. And applying some of these patterns can help you do that. So talking about the cost, I want to mention the... Atlas, which is a cloud offering we have, I think one of the biggest benefits you can get out of Atlas, the cloud offering, is for you to easier to manage the cost and also pay the same performance with lower cost. So the first thing is, so Mongo Atlas is running in three major cloud providers, AWS, Azure, and the GCP. And because they buy so many servers, so they will pay much less price compared to you buy your own purchase and manage your own servers. And second of all, because this cloud offers you to have a pay-as-you-go mode. So let's say to the first day you need one little bit server, and then the after six months, your business become very successful, and you need 10 or maybe 100 servers. And maybe like another six months, you need to run it down back to 50 servers. If you're purchasing your own hardware, there's no way you can return it. You buy it. 100 machines, and if you only use 50, you still pay the cost. Mm. But in Atlas, with the cloud offering, you can feel free to scale up and scale down and increase or decrease the number of instances you use without concerning like paying ahead. So those are the benefits you can really get by leveraging the cloud offerings Atlas databases we have. Excellent. One of the things, and I forgot to ask when you were speaking about it, Jiaqian, was did these kind of investigations, should they always be done in a dev or test environment, or can they be done in the live environment? If you're presented with that opportunity, again, the education example of something's happening very soon, we need to be ready. How do you do that is the recommendation, I would imagine, dev and test Mm -hmm. environments, but can it be done in the live? Yeah, of course. So ideally, we would recommend you to have a dev environment and test in that dev environment, and then deploy it to the production environment. But we, I totally understand that building a dev environment takes time and also introduce additional costs. For example, we do have customers who are running a huge sharded cluster and the cost of the production cluster is like a million dollars a year. And imagine if you copy that and build a dev environment, then you are paying another million dollars a year for that. Nobody's going to help you with it. I think it's very important for you to be able to tune and also very importantly, manage and monitor the performance for your database and for your database clusters in a live situation. So in your live environment. And we do offer like the tools and features to help our users to do that. And that's the performance manager, right? Or is there other tools on Atlas as well? Yeah, the performance manager is where you can see and also the performance advisor. So mm-hmm. with the cloud manager, you will be able to see all the metrics. Like, for example, how many connections is building up in my cluster and how much CPU is being used and how much memory is being used. So with all those data, you will be able to make a decision to say, oh, I need to scale up or scale down. And also in Atlas, we have the perfect advisor, which can help you, give you advice to say, okay, according to your query pattern, you may want to consider to build an additional index 
to help your query to run faster, or you may want to consider to remove some of the index, which is not using to accelerate mm -hmm. your writes. And the AdWords will also have these auto-scale options, which means you can set to say, if my CPU usage is run beyond 70 or 80%, I will automatically upgrade my instance to get a bigger instance to be able to handle this type of workloads more smoothly. And when the workload is going down, I can also scale back my instance. And so I'm paying less. So we covered a ton in this, and I think it's been really great. I'm sure listeners would love to find out more. Where can they go to find out more details on this and dive into the nitty gritty of the topics that we only managed to brush on for a couple of minutes each? I think we can probably put a number of links into the production notes, Shane. There's mm -hmm. a couple of blog posts. There's a blog post series on performance best practices from a couple of years ago. There's a particular article specifically about compound indexes. So I think provide links mm. to, to all of these MongoDB material, but also general material around systems thinking and systems performance. The other great resource is MongoDB University. There's actually a course on performance tuning. M201 is the name of that. Okay. And we've got some white papers as well. And obviously the documentation. And then there's other talks on YouTube as well from MongoDB World going back through the years. So we provide all those links in the show. Excellent. The workshop from MongoDB World is there. This was this has been an hour or so of a conversation there thereabouts, but that's, I think, three, three and a half hours a workshop with both of you there. You can hear and see you as you go through this exercise with an audience in situ. And at the same time, this year, we're making our locals really our locals. We're making them more accessible to the local MongoDB users. Mm -hmm. So instead of having like a big event in London, New York, we will have more events, more local events in more locations. It will be easier for you to join us in the local events. And if you want to talk to our engineers, our products, and the MongoDB experts in person and learn more about MongoDB. And we're putting those all up on mongodb.com forward slash events. You'll see the ones that we've put dates beside. I think there's going to be roughly 30 this calendar year. So as Jai Chen says, they, we're going to come to you wherever you are, as opposed to have two key marquee events in New York and London. So keep an eye out on the website for that. Before we go, anything else either of you would like to share with the audience? Any final thoughts on, on this topic of performance and scalability? I think the key is just to think ahead. You don't want to be resharding if you can avoid it, because that takes a lot of resources. If you add a number of shards, the data naturally is going to balance and rebalance. And that workload in itself adds load. Don't reshard when you've already run out of resources or don't add shards when you've already run out of resources because that's going to add extra load to the system. So it's just a case of thinking ahead. If a lot of data needs to move around, you've got to give it time to land. That makes sense. And Zhao Chen, any parting comments? Yeah, so actually I'm going to go to an opposite direction. So yeah, you'd want to plan ahead. And you want to get ready when you scale, but at the same time, I would say don't overthink and don't overdo when you just start your application, your startup business. And definitely you need to plan according to all this like production checklist and the other understand your requirement. You need to know like when do you need to scale and when that happens, how do you need to scale? 
but you definitely don't need a hundred shards from day one. And you definitely mm-hmm. don't need like a, like 20, 30 indexes from day one. So start from simple and don't waste your time overthinking, overdoing. And those like a common mistake people will make when they just start their applications. And that's the thing about design patterns. Often what happens is there's multiple forces and you're trying to find the balance between those forces to get the right solution. Yeah, go fast, but not too fast. Or as they say, perfect is the enemy of good. Just put it out there, let the world play with it and see what happens. And yeah, if you've got to rethink and redesign a little bit, then that's sometimes a good problem to have as well too. But get it out there, get it into the hands of users in the public and see what happens with your application. This has been a great conversation. I can't believe the amount of content that we've managed to squeeze in to this episode. So I do appreciate you both making that really easy to follow and very logical. And no doubt this will be leading to lots of people clicking on the links in the show notes that we will drop in. But for now, Jer, Zhao Chen, thank you so much. Thanks, Jay. Thank you very much, Shane. Many thanks to Jer and Zhao Chen for joining me. I do hope you found it as useful as I did. As mentioned throughout our conversation, if you want to dive deeper into performance and scalability, we have plenty of links in our show notes to Jer and Zhao Chen's past talks and presentations and many pieces of other content. So do remember to check these out. As also mentioned, the series of mongodb.local events has been announced and will be coming soon, hopefully, to a location near you. So please check out mongodb.com forward slash events to find out more and to register. Many thanks again to Jer and Zhao Chen for joining me and to you, the listener, for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We really appreciate it. So from me, Shane McAllister, and the rest of the podcast team, take care, and we do hope to join you in a future episode.